Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, church. So great to be back with you. And today we're going to rejoin Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. Special thanks to Pastor Manny and Pastor Jeff and Pastor Matt who have covered the teaching so faithfully for me over the past few weeks. And thanks to you uh, for allowing me some time and space to be with my family, get refreshed, turn off the brain for a little bit. Um, I'm excited now about the next part of our year and ministry together uh, as a church. I really believe that God has great things in store for us together uh, this fall and moving on into 2022. I believe that there are many ingredients that are converging together at this time in our nation's history and in this cultural moment, congealing together for a beautiful opportunity for the gospel. And I'm praying and asking God to give us a great harvest together as a church here in the greater Monterey Peninsula area. And so I pray for this and would ask you to join together with me in prayer for all that God wants to do in this community in the near term and also in the long term uh, as well. Like I said, today we're going to uh, re-fire up our study in 1 Peter. We've gone through 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, all the way through verse 12. And today we're going to pick it up in verse 13 to 17 in a message I've called Exile Citizens. Exile Citizens. Now, at this point in Peter's letter, his recipients are well prepared to hear specific exhortations. Tell us, Peter, specifically how we are to live the Christian life. Until now, Peter's primary focus has been on who we are in Christ. Peter knew that his audience was beginning to feel marginalized for their belief in Jesus, but before he told them what to do, he needed them to see how important they were to their community. They were God's chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, and they were meant to declare God's excellencies to their world at that time, and so are we which is why God has preserved Peter's exhortations for us these past 2,000 years. The exhortations stand. The church is still God's special community. Peter's original hearers needed to learn how to live on the edge of society. They were being marginalized for their faith. And I think that we're living in the same time. Especially here in California, we have to learn how to live an exilic Christian life because that's who we are. We are exiles. This world is not our home. And this attitude formed the backbone of Peter's instructions. In fact, his general exhortation we saw in our last study of 1 Peter together. He said in verse 11 of chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is Peter's general exhortation for the church. But now Peter is going to get into some specifics, and the church is ready. Today, he's going to tell us how to be good citizens. How do we interact with our nations? What kind of citizens will exiled Christians need to become? Now, in reading Peter's answer, I want you to activate your imagination. Think about those early believers. Threats were aimed at them. Rumors were swirling about them, and anger was growing against them. They felt the pressure, and they needed a word from their leadership to direct their next steps. What did they need to do? How did they need to behave? Did they need to angrily fight? Did they need to flee for safer territories? Did they need to conform themselves to society so until it would all blow over? No, Peter wanted them to stand firm. And here he'll give them direction on how to treat the governing authorities. Uh, these are Peter's words. They're not mine. They were the authoritative message that these early Christians needed from their apostolic leadership. And they are authoritative for us today. Let's listen to what Peter said. Here's how to be an exile citizen. He said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Lord, please help us to be these exile citizens Teach us now from this passage. In your name we pray, amen. Now Peter's answer to the question of how to be an exile citizen was not an easy answer. His first exhortation is that exile citizens are to be subject. Number one, exile citizens are to be subject. Peter said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. These are, frankly, challenging words. They're not necessarily the words that these early Christians would have wanted to hear. You know, we often love the concept of Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah but Peter's answer is more lamb-like in orientation. He doesn't tell his followers to war against the governmental institutions or the emperors or his governors, but to be subject to them. Now, subjection is not a popular word, and it's not hard to imagine why. But it's the framework that Peter uses for his next few exhortations. Here in our passage today, he tells citizens to be subject to unbelieving governments. Next, he'll tell servants to be subject to unbelieving masters. And finally, in this section, he'll tell wives to be subject to unbelieving husbands. Clearly, Peter thought that he was writing to people who weren't 
in that society's classic positions of power. He believed that the way forward was not class warfare, but submission. Now, this plea to be subject might surprise us, given what Peter has already said that we are. It's been a little while, but I'll remind you that in verse 9 of chapter 2, Peter said that we are a holy nation. And we might imagine that God's church, this holy nation, should assert its rights and take the lead. We're God's people, after all. Peter's exhortation might even sound weak to us. But he seems to see us as a holy nation meant to live in subjection to, and I don't know any other way to say this, unholy nations. A holy nation meant to be living in subject to unholy nations. So the fact that we're a holy nation, in Peter's mind, does not give us the right to rebel against ungodly authorities. Now, I'm sure you're wondering, like I would in approaching this passage, if there are exceptions to this rule. And I'll talk about that in a moment, but don't rush to the exceptions. Allow Peter's directions to sink in. Remember, on the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter was the one who produced a sword and attacked Malchus, the servant of the high priest. He began to fight. But then Peter also was the same man who heard Jesus and his rebuke. He saw Jesus heal the man that he'd injured. And in the most extreme way, Peter watched Jesus subject himself to the unholy governmental and religious institutions of his day. As Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. This way of Jesus contradicts the fighting and angry spirit of our age. But Jesus is our way. And we must prayerfully discern how to imitate Christ as citizens of his holy nation while also being citizens in unholy nations. And this challenge is hard. There's much that concerns us as believers. You know, for instance, I'm grieved at what's happening in our public educational systems. What they're telling children, younger and younger, about their gender and sexuality is alarming for one, shocking for one, inappropriate for two, not their place, unscientific for three, totally unprovable and unverified, and harmful, number four, leading children to think and believe and practice things that they should not be entering into. How do we adhere to Peter's exhortations while also navigating and hopefully even changing at times the course that our world has chosen? It's hard to know. It's at times messy. Now in this passage, if there is an exception clause to the rule that Peter lays down, it's found in his description of the government's purpose. He said in verse 14 that it punishes evil and it praises good. So the government, according to Peter, has a twofold purpose. First, it puts down evil. Second, it promotes good. Now, doesn't this attitude from Peter strike you as highly optimistic? I mean, his words challenge me that he felt this way 
about the government that he was under. I'll remind you, he wasn't living, living in some governmental utopia. It was not the warmest political environment. The rule of Rome was not like the rule of Jesus. Nero, at this point, had probably not yet lost his mind, but he was still Nero. And Peter saw him and his governors as appointed by God for the maintenance of moral values. Now, the assumption is that Peter is speaking in general terms. The Roman Empire was guilty of a lot that contradicted Scripture, and its leaders promoted some truly terrible practices. But generally, it put down evil and it exalted good. And Peter likely has the alternative in his mind. To him, an unrighteous government is better than no government because anarchy is not the answer. But still, it's all too easy to see governments, even our own, engage in practices that aren't elevating good and pushing down evil, but are actually exalting evil. They might even call these evil practices good practices. One might think of how, for instance, abortion rights are considered a deeply held moral good in many quarters. It's a classic example of what Paul said would happen to God-rejecting societies in Romans chapter 1, calling evil good and championing it in the public sphere. So perhaps there's an exception clause here from Peter, meaning that when a governing authority promotes evil, they cease to do what God made them for, so we are no longer meant to be subject. Now, I mention that because clearly there are times that we must obey God rather than men. The early Christians behaved this way when it came time to offer a pinch of incense while saying Caesar is Lord. They wouldn't say it and it got them into a heap of trouble, but they could not give the emperor the worship that belongs only to Jesus. Now all this is really delicate for me to say because our governmental situation seems far better than what the early Christians had. And if we're honest about church history, governmental support and endorsement haven't been all that helpful to the mission of Christ. You know, once Constantine got behind the church in the third century, a malaise caused by ease infected the church. Soon, we had more of a mission to build cathedrals than to reach souls. Remember, two of the most sweeping and radical and effective movements in church history have happened under the threat of government hostility. The first example is the early church. They exploded during a time or an age of persecution. The second example comes from our modern time, the church in China. Against a backdrop of governmental hostility, that church was forced underground in the mid-19th century, or excuse me, the mid-20th century. But while there, it connected to its radical gospel roots and began spreading at a rapid pace. When the hostility began in the mid-1900s, there were around 2 million believers in China. And today, they estimate that there are around 120 million believers in China. Such a short time, such rapid progress. All this should help us understand that the church does not need governmental favor to get the job done. In fact, we seem to do better without it. 
And it seems clear that even if we changed the government, we would still have a nation of people to deal with. We've got to build up reservoirs of strength and truth to handle the age to come. Even if the government and the church were friends, the world is our mission field and is at odds with the gospel because that's humanity. Now, before moving on in the passage, I want to point out a reason that Peter gave for behaving this way, submitting to the governmental authorities. He said in verse 13, for the Lord's sake. What does that mean? Well, first, as I've already mentioned, this is what the Lord did. This is what Jesus did. He submitted, so subjection to the governing authorities is a way to imitate Jesus. Second, the Lord, Jesus, He's the one who established these governmental authorities. So subjection to them is, in a sense, a way to be subject to our sovereign Lord. Third, I think this means that this is a way for us to witness to our world. No one else reacts like this. Everyone else is deeply divided and hostile to the other side. So for the sake of our Lord's mission... We must consider our response to the governing authorities. So prayerfully and with much consideration, let's try to do what Peter says and be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. This is the word of the Lord. But Peter also said that exile Christians should not only be subject, but they should also do good. He said in verse 15 and 16, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants for God. Now, I keep on, in this study of 1 Peter, dragging out the prophet Jeremiah. But his exhortations to Israel, way back when they were pulled into exile into Babylon, are so perfect for us in our modern exile as Christians. Remember, most Israelites did not want to listen to Jeremiah. It was more popular to resist Babylon than to submit to a life of exile. They wanted to fight or they wanted to flee, and eventually many of them conformed to Babylonian society, but Jeremiah wanted them to stand firm as good citizens in their new host culture, who were different as God's people. He said in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now Peter, he wanted the same. We're to be a holy nation, like I said, inside of unholy nations. We're to do good as a strategy to silence those who oppose the cross. As I said in a previous study, our good works won't be the sum total of our gospel preaching. We have to speak. But good works are a major part of our messaging. At times, a life of doing good will mean that we are decent, law-abiding citizens who also do a little bit more than that. We go out of our way to find good things to do for our community. We're always meant to have a higher bar than simply keeping the law. At other times, a life of doing good will mean that we have to confront the evil powers of the day. 
and rescue people from the lies that they are living up under. Sometimes we have to, as Jude said, rescue people from the fire. But at all times, Peter wants more than private acts of piety, but a life of good works. And he seems to suggest that people are watching our lives. People are watching our life. Now, sometimes Christians chafe at this, but think about it. They should watch our lives. We're heralds of the gospel. We say that God is amazing. We believe that Jesus Christ changed our lives. So it makes sense that people would watch our lives for evidence of those claims. However, I don't mean to suggest that a life of good works is somehow a hassle that we have to put on because people are watching. You know, Jesus doesn't like hypocrisy, and that would be hypocritical. But when you're a true child of the living God, when the Holy Spirit lives inside you, when you're regenerated by God, you're being conformed into Jesus's image. So when you, in that condition, with that new nature, pursue good works, the deepest and innermost part of you will be pleased because it's what God is trying to do in you to make you like Jesus. He sets you free from so many besetting sins when you pursue and commit to a life of good works. Flaws like self-centeredness or greed or discontentment or laziness or lust all weaken and fade when we engage in good works because the good works displace the bad ones. Uh, many Western believers have experienced this in major but often temporary ways when going to developing nations on a missions trip. You know, when they're in the new place, they tell themselves, we tell ourselves things like, I'm never going to be discontent ever again. I have so much. We say that because of the contrast of societies. Or we'll say, I'm so happy filling my time serving and helping. I'm never going to go back to watching as much television as I used to watch. Or we say, it feels incredible to tell people about Jesus. I'm going to do this at home. What happens in these cases is that our serving, our good works, have brought out Christ's nature in us. But the thing that we must do is constantly have this stimulation in our lives, not just a mission strip every few years. We have to feed the spirit, not the flesh, and a life devoted to good works continually feeds the spirit. So keep praying about ways that you can help our community with good works, then sign up, volunteer, and go get it. You see, all this is why Peter makes sure to tell us that we've been set free so that we can serve God in verse 16. This pattern is always God's way. Remember the book of Exodus? God set Israel free from Egypt, not so that they could be liberated, but so they could serve him. They actually weren't liberated. They shifted slaveries from Egypt to God. Over and over again, God said through Moses, let my people go that they may serve me. And we are very much set free. 
We're sons and daughters of the King of Kings. We belong to a new kingdom. We're a holy nation. The powers of our day do not have ultimate jurisdiction over us, but still our freedom must be used to do good. We don't use freedom as a cover-up for evil. Instead, we serve God by doing good works for our community. And I hope that these passages serve as a great motivation for you who are working in our governmental system in some way. You can execute your work as a service to God. He instituted these governmental authorities. They ultimately stem from him. And now you are free in Christ to serve God by serving your nation. Now, Peter closes this entire passage by telling us that exiled Christians, number three, must treat everyone well. We must treat everyone well. We must be subject to the governing authorities. We must do good to everyone, but we must treat everyone well. That's what he meant when he said, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, in verse 17. Now this cluster of quick exhortations contains a nod to the tensions that we feel sometimes as citizens. You know, there's a tension there between the community of our society, you know, the one that everybody, everyone lives in, he says, honor everyone, and the one that the emperor rules over, he says, honor the emperor. That's one part of our allegiance. But then there's the new society that we belong to, the one that the brotherhood, he says, love the brotherhood, or the one that God is in, he says, fear God. Second, there's the tension between God and the emperor. Though the governmental authorities, people like kings or presidents or governors and emperors should be honored, Peter is sure to say that God is the one, though, that must be feared, he must be respected. But again, that tension between our invisible Lord, God, and King, and earthly rulers. Third, there's the tension between kingdoms. We're meant to care about everyone, about benefiting our earthly kingdoms, but we're also meant to care about the invisible kingdom, about benefiting our brotherhood and fearing God. So as believers, Peter seems to suggest that we are living in a place of tension. But each of these closing exhortations helps us navigate the tension well and even make good decisions when one group must be prioritized above another. So let's think for a second about each category. First, Peter said we must honor everyone. Exiled Christians, believers, know that every person is made in God's image. No matter how radical their ideology has departed from God's ways, every human on earth today has the echoes of God's design reverberating within them. This means that they will do some good things, make some cool stuff, and are worthy of honor. This is why, for instance, you'll hear Christians champion religious rights for people of other faiths. It isn't that we agree with their religion. It isn't even that we think if they aren't protected, neither will we. It's that we believe everyone should be honored. That's the point. Second, Peter said that we should love the brotherhood. 
We should love the brotherhood. Exile citizens, in other words, love God's family. We have a new, special family that we're called to embrace. And again, in Peter's letter, he is pushing us towards the body of Christ, not to isolation, but to be together. Third, Peter said that we should fear God. And we've thought about this in a previous study way back in 1 Peter 1, verse 17. Peter isn't saying that we should live in terror of God, but that we should respect God. We should have a high respect for God. And of course, it's the Proverbs that teach us that it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. When you have a respect for God, wisdom is unlocked. But when you have a low regard for God, folly is sure to follow. You see this with many liberal Christians who, without a fear of God, are willing to tamper with God's word. It leads them to great folly. Fourth, Peter said we should honor the emperor. We should be people who give honor to the governing authorities. It isn't so much that they are people worthy of honor or that they make honorable decisions at all times, but that they also are made in God's image and their position as one that God has ordained. Exiled Christians might disagree with them, but we are good and respectful in our disagreement because we want to honor the emperor or honor those in positions of authority. Now, all of these words that we've looked at today are hard words from the Apostle Peter. They challenge us and should make us think cautiously about what we will say or think about governmental authorities. Exiled Christians should not respond impulsively, but thoughtfully, strategically, and respectfully, all while maintaining good works. And I'd conclude with one last exhortation. Don't fixate too much on the government. Jesus didn't. He was in the thick of Roman oppression and did have a few comments about it, but was focused on his mission. And we as God's people must be focused on our ultimate purpose for being here on earth. Fixation on the government or politics is often a sign that a society's churches and families have devolved. What we should get from relationships and the community of faith, we often start looking for from the church, or excuse me, from the government. But the government can't give these things to us. The government, what they do or don't do, can lead to disappointment. And when we devote too much of our time observing its behavior, our spirit generally erodes along with our character. Instead, we must get our eyes upon the Lord. But prayerfully, let's be a group of people who, along with these exiled Christians that Peter wrote to, consider and ask and pray. God, give us the wisdom to submit to our governing authorities, to know how to do that, when to do it, when to resist. Give us the wisdom, Lord, to know how to devote ourselves to a life of good works. Show us where you want us to serve and help and bless our society and help us, Lord, to treat everyone well. Let the name of Christ never be abused by mistreating other human beings who are made in the image of God. Let us be good exile citizens together. God bless you, church. 
Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.